I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the front three, but it's not the front three, it's the front two, it's two up top, it's a big man, little man, I'll let you decide which. By now I assume you know who I am, I'm joined tonight by Nico Morales. Uh, Nico, how are you doing on this Monday evening, a bank holiday in the UK, but nowhere else I believe? I'm doing pretty well. What bank holiday is it over there? I didn't re- I didn't realise you guys had one. Officially it's May Day, which is the first Monday in May. Okay. We had a full action of Premier League, European things, everything kind of slowly drawing down to a, a close, and yet, in the same instance, I can see the 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 shadow of the World Cup peering over the hill there as, uh, as it approaches us. How, how are you kind of dealing with the last few weeks of the, the league season? Does it does it feel tiring at all to you by this point? 100%. I, I was going to ask you the kind of the same question, but I do kind of get a little pooped out of, of especially English football I think it's more because I'm I'm watching that more consistently uh, during the regular parts of the season so I start to watch you know more La Liga more Liga more different teams across Europe and it's like a really nice refreshing thing it keeps my interest in football peaked and obviously keeps my ideas relevant so I like I kind of that's how I deal with it kind of the fatigue of the Premier League and I kind of become a little bit too cynical about it but yeah, I mean, I'm really, really excited for the World Cup because, I mean, who doesn't love a, a good old international competition? Exactly. Um, someone who is, is both tired and excited at the same time is Mo Salah, who, like Nico, has had a wonderful 12 months. Uh, we saw on Sunday, yes, Sunday, Sunday afternoon, Liverpool take on Chelsea. It was, to me, it felt a bit, bleh, a, bit a little bit drab, almost a little bit, after the Lord Mayor show for, for Liverpool in so much as they looked a little bit flat. Chelsea, I thought, looked a little bit the same. Did, did you have strong impressions of this one that you took away from it? Not particularly. I think it's more... It was interesting. I was listening to the Ringer FC, which is a the, the Ringer's soccer podcast, and they were kind of talking about how... You know, Liverpool are in this moment right now, obviously with the Champions League final looming uh, close and... You know they're still in contention for top four. The, the the nerves are starting to come in a little bit because of this immediate fixture that was against Chelsea. Um, you know against another top four rival. So I think you know the conversation surrounding Liverpool right now is 
you know, will they have the ability to accomplish these two things that obviously they need to accomplish in order to continue this this ever increasing sort of upward trajectory. Um, but it's I you know, like I said before, I think it's this is a really pivotal moment for Liverpool and, and the Chelsea game I think was just kind of a, a placeholder for other exciting things to come. But obviously they, they dropped three points to an opponent that might finish in front of them in, in, in terms of the top four race, but obviously they have that big game coming up. So it's it's all a bit a little bit weird for Liverpool right now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It is it is a little bit weird for them and yet I feel like sometimes we can almost be drawn into huge conclusions from 90 minutes, which, again, is kind of what you and I make a living from more specifically. But <clears throat> for Salah in particular, there's a, there's a few weeks before this final, and we were talking about this just before we hit record about Carvajal and will he be fit and the debate about Lucas Vasquez on Nacho, and I've had a lot of very opinionated Real Madrid fans tell me how stupid I am to think that it, it might be Lucas Vasquez that plays. Um would you approach this with the mentality if you were Jurgen Klopp to just give the players a couple of weeks off and, and really kind of withdraw them and charge up the batteries or or is there any kind of benefit to, to keeping the continuity of playing 90 minutes when whenever you can? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's an interesting one. Um, it, at the weekend with, with El Clasico going on, obviously we saw, as you mentioned, Denny Carvajal is, is fit now. Um, he's recovering from a heart condition that he has, and we saw Nacho sort of play in his position, and it was a little bit lopsided from Real Madrid. Obviously, they still had the attacking prowess and forward action of Marcelo that almost operates as like a winger, um, but Nacho wasn't anywhere near as high because he doesn't have that capability, both from an attacking perspective and, I think, athletically, and I think that's the difficulty for a lot of these teams that are approaching, and really bef- even before the final stages of the Champions League, like we're approaching these later stages in their, these really important competitions is like how do they rotate these things to get the best out of their players and can they depend on sort of not the second rate players but maybe not their ideal 11 and going back to Liverpool I think that has been a lot of the conversation around Klopp this season is that he's rotated really really well and the conversation around him in January including from people like myself was that you know he needs you know he wasn't making the right decisions from a personnel perspective and I think there was a game with Everton where you know, he played kind of a, a second-rate 11, and, and people didn't really agree with that. Neither Everton won or they or they managed to grab a point against them, and people were really disappointed with that at the time. But I think in future seasons, if people can remember that, obviously Liverpool are in a really good moment right now. They're in a Champions League final. That is the result of using these younger players and these auxiliary players, you know, in January in these moments where at the time maybe we're a little bit disappointed because he has to use uh, players that aren't going to give him as much in terms of, like, the ideal result. But that rest is so valuable for these players, and I think as time moves on, as the, as the capitalization of the of the global game becomes greater and greater and greater, and we start to squeeze more and more out of each and every player, like the the rest and the way that coaches do that is going to become way way more important um, in terms of like an actual skill set. I think before it was like if you can do it and you can do it really well, it's definitely an added bonus. But now that you know we see some players play almost continuously for like three years given like you know extended league competitions or extended you know champions league or or cup competitions and then it goes into the summer sometimes we see players straight play for like three years straight that can really take a toll on them physically so if they're not being rotated correctly that's going to be a major problem one of the things i've seen about this liverpool team that was interesting is 
almost the notion that some sections of the support, and I'm very careful not to group everyone together as some homogenous blob, are almost a little bit disappointed that they're going to have to go into the last game of the season with, I think it's Brighton, needing to, to win to secure Champions League. Now, at the same time, obviously, if they win the Champions League, they qualify automatically. If you'd said at the start of the season, and I've seen Liverpool fans say this, so I'm, I think I don't think I'm playing devil's advocate too much, that they wouldn't have that eventuality, a Champions League final, but needing to, to win on the last day to qualify, fans wouldn't have been disappointed. Do you do you land on one side or the other with this as to what feels like the more rational sort of response to to the way that their their season is unfolding in its in its back stretches? A hundred percent. I think I was on the the opposing side of the argument, or I guess I was on the the more rational what I view to be the more rational side of the argument um, when Manchester United were in a similar predicament last season. I think it's. To put all of your eggs in one basket, especially a cup final where anything can happen, and as someone that has, like, obviously I haven't played in a Champions League final or anything close to it, but in high school, I played in a state championship game, which was the peak athletic moment, and I can tell you from experience, like, you have a different feeling about that game, you have a different rush of adrenaline, no one, you know, you you do your absolute best, and in my case, I, I played really, really well, because it was a special occasion, and, and it was something that I was completely intrinsically motivated for, and I have to imagine that players go through a very similar thing when they're in a Champions League final, so to put all your eggs in one basket, I was, I was not approving of that when it was Manchester United, who had... I think you could say more of a guaranteed result. Obviously, we never know what's going to happen in these finals. And obviously, Manchester United came out victorious, but Liverpool are going up against Real Madrid. And and for them to stake so much on the future of their club, and as I talked about, they're, they're, they're having this upward trajectory with Klopp, with Mohamed Salah, with their great recruitment to pin all of all of that progress really for another year on one game that they may or may not lose is is kind of is really risky and I think maybe that's the mantra of this Klopp era is risk and and fortune favors the bold type of thing um, but yeah it's it's a really difficult position to be in it does it does seem that way I do I do yeah I can't really relate I've never even come close to a Champions League final. Or a state final on a on a professional on a playing level. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a funny one. Looking at the game it, itself, though, I mean, we'll do a, a great big old um, preview pod for you guys to digest a, a later date. There, there's an element already of it being boiled down to Salah against the space in behind Marcello, um, which sounds like something Prince would say. But is is that as as simple as it can get? That really it could come down to to how that that battle plays out on on uh, in Kiev? I think sometimes. I like the headline. I haven't actually read the piece, but I like the headline that Jonathan Wilson had in his piece, which was, we're not sure what's going to happen between Real Madrid and, and Liverpool, but there will definitely be chaos. And I think that's that's kind of where all tacticians reside, is that you kind of, at least from my perspective, you, you, throw, you throw your expectations out the window when it comes to being... Um, tactically correct in terms of preview because these managers sometimes they do things that are wild and and we're not we don't we're not working with all the information we don't know the fitness levels and with Ronaldo possibly being injured with Isco possibly being injured with different injury and health concerns going on there are so many factors that come into like 
throwing off a tactical prediction. But I think this has been the case for a lot of Champions League finals, in, including some of the ones for Real Madrid, is that there are these hinge points, and and many of the a lot of the time it has been the space behind Marcelo. How will Casemiro perform? Will Luka Modric and Toni Kroos be pressed off the ball, or will they, you know, will they be able to press, resist, and move the ball forward? Like. These are the hinge points of the game, and you can say, yeah, 100%, the result is kind of dependent as to whether those players succeed in those specific situations or if they lose. And I think that space behind Morcello will be pivotal, but I don't think it'll entirely decide the tie. Like I said, I think it's going to be a midfield battle, and it really, for me, I think, as Chris mentioned, we'll do a preview pod that maybe goes more directly into it, but it'll be a a, a more of a midfield thing, and, and it kind of how the balance of play balances between the two teams. Like, will Real and decide to entirely be the team in possession and try to pick them apart as they have in the past three Champions League finals with Modric and Cruz and using them in a specific way? Or will another player come to the fore? Will it be an Isco or an Asensio or someone else? I think there are a lot of hinge points in this game, and, and certainly the, the space with Salah is one of them, but certainly not the, the, the main one. Elsewhere in, in London, in our nation's capital, there was uh, a goodbye to someone that's actually been uh, at Arsenal longer than some fans have actually been supporting them. There's children who will know nothing but Arsene Wenger. Um, it was his sort of send-off on, on Sunday. Did, did you watch the proceedings at all? Did you kind of see how it all, all went down? I saw a little bit of it, yeah, and I, I, I think... Either you mentioned it or somebody else mentioned it, but they said, I think it's very telling that the first thing that Arsene Wenger said was was words about Sir Alex, who I think we all hope will uh, will get better. So I, I, that part I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, it, it was a <clears throat> it was a curious um, sort of send off in a lot of ways. I thought Bob Wilson, uh, former Arsenal goalkeeper and goalkeeping coach, spoke beautifully, uh, not just about Arsene's achievements, but also just him as a person, and then. The man himself came forward and and had um, some words of his his own to to impart on the crowd who who stayed behind to to sort of cheer him, and yeah, there was. I I feel like in in a funny way these last few weeks and months we we've almost seen more of Arsene Wenger the person than ever before, and what I mean by that is that there's an air of him being almost like a priest type figure to me, um, a pastoral type figure who is very rooted in principles and beliefs and and how to do things and there is a way to do things and it's very clear and defined. But then also that for everything that he's given Arsenal and you can debate what that is in your own time, he's taken a lot from it as well. Not in a, not in a bad way either. I mean, I, I mean that he's sort of woven himself into the club and the club has woven into him in, in so much as his last sort of words saying, you know, I'm going to miss you. <clears throat> that to me speaks to to someone that probably did stay in this job a little bit longer because he was so attached to it. It it wasn't necessarily always a, a driving ambition to be better. It was because it it felt like home. It felt like family. And this this is someone who's had a nigh forty year career spread across. I think it's four clubs altogether: Monaco, Nagoya, Grampus, Arsenal, and, and the fourth is escaping me for some reason. But it was it was interesting. It was quite nice at the same time to see a lot of his former players turn up, uh, Mark Overmars. But there was one notable absentee in Thierry Henry, who you could argue 
a little bit hypocritically at the same time as he was not present um, because he was in Manchester doing Sky Sports duties, um, said that Arsenal had given him so much. Is is there anything at all to read into to that without wishing to stir trouble that, that he wasn't present at, at Arsenal's big send-off, given kind of what had been said and, and what he was supposed to have meant to him? In that specific situation, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it raises an adequate point about sort of the different factions within those who are at, who were at one point employed by Arsenal Football Club and are still currently employed by Arsenal Football Club in terms of from a coaching perspective. And I think there was some reporting that I had heard that, that obviously they haven't come to an agreement as to who the next coach is going to be, uh, as to who takes over after Wenger. And I think some people wanted Mikel Arteta to take that job. Some people were in favor of Patrick Vieira. Some people even in favor of Thierry Henry. Other people in other different positions have been mentioned. Um, but I think there's a real real difficulty with that because it doesn't seem like there's a real top-down approach. And, and if there are many different people with the knives out talking about all these different names and, and doing those things, I, I can't imagine that there's a great deal of organization and uniform organization moving forward. And for a club that... I think is really entering a defining period, not only because obviously their 20-year manager is leaving or 20-plus-year manager is leaving. It, it, it says a lot about it says a lot about their approach in terms of they're moving in into, into an era that this is now what is going to define them going forward. They had their era of dominance. They had the Invincibles. They had the title-winning teams and the teams that could challenge for the title. They have since fallen, and it's a completely different era in the Premier League now. This is how Arsenal are going to move forward now. And to to not be able to move forward in terms of appointing a or having a consistent opinion or backing when it comes to the new coach, I think is a very dangerous thing. And dare I say it, we may see Arsenal continue to fall if that if that's going to be the case. So, you know, I, I think it's 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 an interesting one because I think some of the more qualified candidates have unfortunately been gobbled up by Manchester City, or rather, unfortunately for um, for Arsenal, because a lot of people mentioning the the names Mikel Arteta and Patrick Vieira, but I mean those. City Football Group put time, effort, and resources into training them into what I imagine a lot of people would say are are, are you know promising young coach coaching talents, and um, they're not just going to let that money or let let that investment go to a to another possible title rival or a, or a top four rival at the very least. So I think this is this is a very, this is a very key moment for for Arsenal in terms of how they move forward, and and it from the outside looking in at least it doesn't look like. It's it's moving in a very uniform direction. It's interesting when you talk about the factions because it, to me, when you said that, the image that jumped in my head was Ajax and the sort of kerfuffle they had a couple of years ago, where you had sort of the the Cruyffians, if you will, to make it almost more sound like a civil war, and those who were on the opposite side of that. I think you had like Bergkamp and Davids, and uh, Wim Yonk was another one, and I'm not I honestly can't even remember who was on what side. Just that. There were all these competing ideas of people who would come through the system. So in theory, knew the system better than anyone else. But when you consider how many people go through that same school and, and ideology at the same time, as did with that sort of famed Ajax team of the mid-90s, they can't all be right all of the time. And it's it, it had me curious at the, in, the, in the same breath that while Ajax haven't had to transition from a sort of staple coach figurehead like that maybe to a certain degree with with Cruyff we looked at Manchester United they 
brought in David Moyes, they had a pre-selected successor. There's a lot of conjecture about who comes in now, who replaces Arsene Wenger. Is it Simeone? Is it one of those players that you touched on there? Is there ever a right or is there ever a correct way to transition to a coach like this? Because a lot of the discourse I see is people saying, I wouldn't want to be next, but I'd happily be the guy after that guy, which seems so funny to me when when you think about kind of just how how the whole management game works in general. Yeah, certainly. And I think there is, I, I think I'm kind of one of those people along with that train of thought. But at the same time, I think the position is different to that of Manchester United because it's not, it hasn't been the same level of achievement. If you get at least in the top six, if not the top four, then you are achieving better than what Arsene Wenger has done for the past two years now. So I think there, it's an interesting question that maybe we should post to the Arsenal fans that do listen to this podcast in terms of would, if Arsene Wenger were to come out and appoint a, a replacement or a successor, would the fan base unanimously respect that and, 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 you know, say thank you for your contribution and, you know, we respect your opinion and we want to, you know, do do you the honor of, of following that and kind of unanimously go along with it until, you know, something happens or even if it does. Um, but I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to be the one that, that takes that position next because I think, I think a lot of the underachievement that has gone down recently on, at Arsenal hasn't entirely been his fault. I think it has been because the club ha- isn't willing to, to, to they want to compete with the top four, but they are not willing to, to make the actions to do so from a financial perspective. And as, you know, as cynical as maybe we all want to be about the, the role of finances in the modern game, I think as City have shown, as United have shown with their continued involvement in the top four, despite not necessarily um, playing the most glittering or, or exciting football, you know, you do need significant monetary investment to have consistent success, especially in the Premier League. So I, I think... With those things, I I I think there is almost an element of of poison chalice to to Arsenal that is is really difficult for really any manager to come along and and succeed. Yeah, it's funny you talk about financial investment as well. Just just because of the state, I think Arsenal are in, and I've written something that will will in theory be out by the time people listen to this about Mesut Ozil and why sort of scapegoating him is is actually the the wrong side of the coin to look at, and that. Even his salary is not the issue at Arsenal. It's the people who chose to give him that salary. that They're the problem because they, for some reason, are going against what seems the logical and sensible decisions for that football club. It's a bit better explained in the article because I've got a few more words. Um, one team that doesn't have much left. Um, not the best segue, bear with me. Um, could argue I deserve to be relegated for that segue. Much like Stoke City. saved it hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That was, that was much better. Um, Stoker obviously down. Uh, West Brom are hanging on for dear life and need a culmination of results to go their way this week to stay up. It seems as if they are down. I, f- I feel comfortable saying that. Um, and then it's potentially one of Southampton and or Swansea. There was an interesting piece this week from Football 365. I believe it was John Nicholson, who was a Middlesbrough fan for his sins, um, who talked about the idea of of relegation not being as terrible um, as one might expect. It was sort of slanted towards, with the greatest respect to teams like Borough and and maybe even Stoke, those who are not considered the top-level elite, those who sort of... Yo-yo is the wrong word because it's not in that short a space of time, but fluctuate up and down across decade periods. Um, where do you stand on this? Because obviously Man City have their own sort of... Uh, less than successful past where they were, were dwindling in the lower tiers and now sit atop Europe's table. Are, are you of the opinion that the actual relegation can be a good thing for a team that's only just keeping its head above water? I think there are a lot of different sides to the coin. I And I like to jump back to, I mean, obviously there are only two sides to a coin, um, so that wasn't the best analogy, but I like to jump back to a point that, that uh, you and McTeer made, I think on this very podcast a while ago, which is that, if you take, for example, a team like Ibar, they're currently in La Liga or have been relegated this season. I'm not entirely sure what their current status is, but um, they are a team that has enjoyed a few seasons in the top division in Spain. And all of their fans, all of their players, their owners, everything, um, everyone, they all know that their presence in La Liga is due to significant overachievement. And while it has been a consistent level of overachievement and they've done really well to kind of stay there for one or two seasons, they are painfully aware that their home is very much not in, in La Liga. They have a stadium that isn't near fit. They're, I think they actually face a fine because something about the TV rights that you have to have a certain a number of fans or a certain capability to hold a number of fans in order to have certain games televised or some crazy rule like that and Ibar are consistently fine because they don't actually have the ability to hold that many fans something crazy like that um and so I think it's with a blissful sense of enjoyment that a lot of the Ibar fans have been able to really fully enjoy the time that they've had in La Liga the wins that they've had the the success um, that they've had by staying there while still acknowledging that they're home as a, as a club in terms of their means and uh, just following as a, as a team that isn't uh, a team from a from a city that is that big is you know entirely propped up by overperformance and I think that's kind of the sentiment that that John uh, pushes across in his piece is that there are some teams out there that just by the nature of the way that they are um, and their marketability and, and how they're built and the people that follow them and the area that they're from, just their home isn't going to be in the Premier League. So for those teams, I think there is a genuine 
reason as to why you would say, okay, we got relegated, we're not playing in the Premier Division anymore, the Premier League, that's okay. But I think in some cases, like Stoke and some of these larger teams, you could say, you know, you have the ability. Newcastle, for example, obviously just came back from from a relegation below. And, and I think you can make some positive points about how that has helped restructure the team and they've kind of recentered and have a, had a change of focus towards a sort of more unilateral direction. But you miss out on a ton of money. And in, in this current age where the, the money is really unprecedented, especially for the Premier League, the TV the TV deals for the Premier League are just insane now. The amount of money that they're distributed because they're a part of the Premier League for just one year is pretty incredible. And I think if, if the club's owners and the people in the front office have a general idea to move maybe more towards a consistent Premier League direction, money's a very big part of that. And missing out on it, obviously, is a, is a major um, major setback in in sort of that direction. So, I mean, what do you what do you think about all that? I, I've got to admit, it it definitely has an impact on those who likely didn't cause the problem. So, your admin staff, your media team, th- those people tend to lose their jobs, which is, I, I mean, that's a separate issue in a lot of ways. I think it's a disgrace in many ways because, like I said, they didn't contribute to it in any way. From a purely fan's perspective, winning sort of a quarter of your games every season, you know, losing games you shouldn't, winning games that maybe you know you shouldn't either, that that toing and froing, I can see why it becomes monotonous. I have I have to accept, accept and confess in the same breath that the two promotion seasons that we've had as Newcastle fans were actually quite exciting for for very different reasons. The first one, they were near the top all the way, dominated things pretty much. The second time, they were expected to win and then do it on the last day with pretty much the last kick. And maybe it's um, pessimist to, to think it. I don't know what comes around to change the situation whereby <clears throat> those same um, sort of parameters for excitement are recreated at the top of the Premier League whereby my team is challenging. So I almost have to um, accept that, for me, as a fan of, of a team outside the top six, a, a championship run, a promotion run, is probably about as good as it's going to get from a league perspective. Yeah, might win the FA Cup, the League Cup, maybe to push you the UEFA is, Cup. Is, is, the, is the hope and maybe expectation a little bit different, though, as you said, maybe maybe Newcastle, especially right now, are not a, uh, certainly not a team in the top six, but I think... Maybe in in the most, in the craziest of some people's pipe dreams, uh, living in 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 Newcastle, does one imagine a a return to the glory days? Because I think there have been you know several consistent years where Newcastle is a very known and I guess you could say marketable name, upon uh, um, or among um, global crowds in in terms of their accessibility from for for foreign fans. So I think. If you maybe if you look at a club like Sunderland, the opposite team in Newcastle, and and you kind of say they've had a relegation, they've gone right back down again. Um, I mean, that there's a, a certainly a clear case to say that that relegation is is probably the worst thing that could happen to them, right? Yeah, I think that was the the problem is that when Newcastle were challenging for the top, they were able to compete financially. I mean, they broke a British transfer record for Alan Shearer, which was now looks laughable at 15 million. Um, and that's the problem, is that I th- it's something I often hear trotted out by supporters, that unless a sugar daddy comes along, 
it's unlikely for for a team to break that sort of uh, glass ceiling of where the top six sort of rest their feet. And I'm inclined to agree. That's the problem. I mean, even look at Everton. Everton have a decent amount of money at the minute, and they've wasted a ton of it. Now you could argue that's just bad personnel making the decisions, but I think it's it's almost it's almost why I see a lot of people rail against modern football. And I'm being really careful to choose my words there because I don't want to come off as as someone sort of shouting down the the new generation. But the idea that you know you could you could have like an Ipswich who came up a couple of years ago and and then got into Europe, or even a Newcastle the first time around in '92 who came up and then went straight for the Premier League. I, I feel like that's just not going to happen. I, f- I do feel like there's a much lower plateau for, for teams that come up and do that kind of stuff at least in England I think you can maybe extrapolate a, a different conclusion from other parts of Europe I mean you look at Dortmund who've got their finances in order now they're back and doing good things without really kind of crippling themselves financially Monaco won Ligon without I would say sort of destroying themselves financially again yes they bought Moutinho and Falcao but it wasn't you know a huge overhaul of, of investing in, in big names so but I but I, I like that you said that though and I, I think maybe there's a discussion there to be had about a lot of people are very cynical about the you know the the I don't know the successful ones, successful ones of, of modern football and obviously as a Manchester City fan I am the quintessential example of someone that has largely benefited from an oil rich an oil rich country backing a team and and psg are in that circle as well and and so much of this is finances and i think if we were to look at it from that perspective i think that's where a lot of people become deeply cynical is that like even if their team gets a scalp on the day even if uh you know lester wins a title in in one year which still is an incredible and crazy anomaly of something to happen there will always be the the consistent success of those who spend a ton of money and ultimately that's what it comes down to and i think that's a very depressing way to look at it but i I imagine there are those who are listening to this podcast who have a more um maybe optimistic look on those things so definitely let us know um on twitter yeah and and i think that's the other thing is that the idea now that more teams have to sit deep and and really defend and that kind of thing. So the, there's clearly a lot of nuance to the situation, and I and I would I'd be very curious actually to hear what what um what our listeners think about that. Our third and final topic this week um, is El Clasico, um, the meeting of of the two biggest teams in Spain, which despite not actually meaning anything in the moment, other than maybe you know, the maintenance of, of Barcelona's unbeaten record for the season actually had a lot of spice to it. There was a little bit of a little bit of needle to it. Um what did you think? I think it had everything. Yeah, it it kind it of had did, absolutely because it because the first like I would I want to say like the first thirty five minutes was like this really cool tactical battle. The teams were kind of playing at old school, holding high lines, playing a lot of the game in the center of the pitch, which is a really risky thing to do. There was like a few moments where Messi was like made a really good run behind Sergio Ramos and almost got around Killer Navas like several times. Real Madrid did the same with Ronaldo. 
um, Umtiti stepping up like a couple times at the right moment to just catch Ronaldo offside. So from a tactical perspective, I was very satisfied. And then I think from an entertainment perspective, the last 10 minutes of the first half was scrappy. It was classic Real Madrid, you know, Luka Modric choking Jordi Alba, Sergio Roberto getting a red card for kind of punching Marcelo in the face, I guess, if that's what you can call that. So it it had everything. It just didn't have any particular meaning in terms of the league table. Yeah, it, it it didn't. That was the, which is kind of the the interesting thing about it is that it didn't really have any relevance other than maybe pride. I mean, there was the whole pre-game about uh, Sergio Ramos saying they wouldn't give a guard of honor, which I can understand why that maybe um, perturbed some people. Because do you think that's childish? Do you think that's a childish thing to do? I feel like, given the amazing achievement that it is for a team to go unbeaten and I think that's kind of we can come on to talk about this but that that is one of the points that I have is that this Barcelona team really isn't that good there are many very there are a lot of including their own organization there are a lot of La Liga winners of the previous seasons that would destroy this Barcelona team I think but it still is from an individual standpoint an amazing achievement to go an entire season unbeaten in La Liga um, or really any league, and I think it's the first time since 1931 that someone has done that in La Liga. So it's it's interesting. But yeah, do you think it's kind of childish from from Ramos to to not or Real Madrid rather to not uh, acknowledge them in that respect? From my understanding, and I'm I'm happy to be uh, proven wrong by Real Madrid fans. It did seem a bit childish just because they they were good enough to give Real Madrid a guard of honor many years ago with with Ramos and the team, I believe, nonetheless. And so, yeah, there's, there's part of me that thinks you probably should have just done it for, for, for what it's worth. Um, the game itself, the, it's it's funny, Zidane hasn't lost a classical at the new Camp yet, I believe. Um, I think he's had a win in three draws. And yet, I thought last night, 10 men, they should, they should have really won it. I appreciate, again, this is where you, hope, you have to give so many caveats when you talk about Barcelona and Real Madrid because you can almost <laughs> hear the the... The moving People of typing. There are yeah, typing. the typing, the sort of the moving of chairs as their respective fans stand up to shout at you. Um, the the second goal for Barcelona, there's definitely I think a foul on Varane in the build up, um, but that doesn't excuse the 45 seconds to a minute that then follows before the goal actually goes in. But I thought that that Real Madrid with 10 men for the better part of 45 minutes probably should have, have tried to like not tried to win the game, but should have won the game in essence, but. I think the the curiosity for me is that you talked about it. That you said that you know that you think there are other teams that could beat this Barcelona side historically. Real Madrid have arguably one of the more polarizing perceptions this season. I find because they're in another Champions League final. Potentially, this could be their fourth title in five years. This is already their fourth final in five years. So historically they may go down as one of the best teams in European competition ever and yet no one actually rates them at the same time paradoxically everyone thinks that they're not a good team so so where do you stand on that kind of debate is it one of those things where and we've joked about the Madrid naughty word salute L such and such is it as simple as that that if you win things you essentially can negate any claims of not being a good team. Is that is that what we're saying with Real Madrid, that achievement trumps opinion? It's kind of the same it's kind of the same point, but 
a different side of the coin with Tottenham. I think James York a while ago released a sort of points table for the like wins, losses, goal differential, and I guess points over the last three, two or three seasons. I think three seasons. And above, it was for the Premier League only, but above every other team, including Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United, whoever, guess who it was? It was Tottenham. Tottenham had the most wins, they had the most points, they had a really good defensive record, I think they had a really good goals record, and goal differential record too, and it was in line sort of with the expectation, the expected points that we had um, we had for them, but again, we, we know this, they haven't won anything um, in the Mauricio Pochettino era, so I, I think there is always an interesting debate to be had as to whether... As to what dictates a really good team, I think just like a Napoli or a Pochettino, or uh, sorry, a Tottenham under Pochettino or whoever, there is an appreciation to the success that you can have without actually winning anything. But at the same time, there, you know, it isn't. You can't. You can't just say that the only teams that are successful or the only teams that deserve to be praised are the ones that get the trophies. But you also have to say that it's an incredible achievement regardless of what you think personally of this Barcelona team from a talent perspective um, that they are undefeated in La Liga because that just takes an immense amount of consistency and concentration and a little bit of luck. But I think the the underlying metrics kind of back up the Barcelona this this year's Barcelona. And I think, honestly, this is only the first year under Ernesto Valverde, I think, He's going to do a lot of good things with this team going forward, and as long as the as long as Barcelona get the recruitment right and they kind of replace the right pieces, as we talked a little bit about on the last podcast where we we were mentioning the the, the Iniesta replacements and stuff like that, there is a bright future for Barcelona, especially with players like Usman Dembele and and, mm. and guys like that. And I guess um, the last question I have for you with Messi is: center, you can't really uh, Champions League final approaching. Is is there anyone? that you see as a weakness that is not named the space in behind Marcello? <laughs> I think, and I had a conversation with, um, I always pronounce his name incorrectly, but Om Arvind, I think. Um, he's a, he's the editor at Managing Madrid. Uh, and he kind of talked about how Zidane has gone away from the diamond at Real Madrid because of the pressing structure and how other teams played them in La Liga and stuff like that. And I think, and I'm currently writing something um, to be on the lookout for that but i'm currently writing something as it pertains to isco and rather than a weakness i know you wanted a weakness but rather than a weakness i think there is something to be said about the the, the way that he has conducted himself and the effect that he has on this this real madrid team and i think he could be very pivotal in the final as to whether real madrid are successful or, or in fact do not do not win their european uh third european crown so be on the lookout for that yeah, there you go. Here it first. We will have a detailed preview, obviously closer to the final itself. In between, we'll have a ton more audio for your delightful ears to sample and enjoy. Um, but in the meantime, I've been Kristen Hennage. He has been Nico Morales. Thank you very much for listening, and most importantly, enjoy what little club football we have left. Number. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.